we have outlawed these substances. The demand has not gone away. It's gone underground into the black market. It's far more dangerous. We've destroyed the lives of users who feel like they can't do it in a safe way. I think this is just a condemnation of the aggressive war on drugs and just further proof that that doesn't work. This is one of those areas where federalism can work to our advantage. And when yeah. different states can implement different policies, we could see which work and which don't. Mm -hmm. And then other states could pick those up. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, there's a lot happening in the world today. Where are we going to start? Well, we're going to start here in America. Americans are dying from drug overdoses at alarming record high levels. We'll discuss the fentanyl crisis and what can be done about it. Elon Musk's bid to purchase Twitter is getting stalled by bots, or at least that's what he claims. The ACT says grades are going up while test scores are staying the same. We'll ask Principal Ravi if that's a problem. And American mothers are struggling with a very specific shortage, baby formula. We'll get into how that happened and all the political uproar surrounding it. But first things first, we begin on a tragic note in Buffalo, where a racist mass shooting has shaken a nation. An 18-year-old white man is accused of targeting a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood, shooting and killing 10 people, all of them black, Another three were wounded, two of them were white, but authorities immediately began investigating this shooting as a hate crime, largely because of a white supremacist manifesto the suspected gunman posted online. Now, the shooting is bringing fresh scrutiny to a conspiracy theory known as the Great Replacement, which we'll explain in greater detail as we get into all of this, but the basic facts here are truly horrifying. The suspect is thought to have driven over 200 miles just to get to this store where he opened fire with a semi-automatic weapon, which reportedly had the N-word written on the barrel. The shooter managed to live stream his rampage for about the first two minutes, echoing the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand back in 2019. The whole thing is utterly disgusting, and yet I wish it was more surprising. It's the worst of just over 200 mass shootings already this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Now, Ricky and Ravi, what were your reactions when you first heard about this tragedy over the weekend? I mean, this is just horrible. And, you know, I spent a lot of time up in Buffalo. I have a lot of friends who live not too far from where this happened. And I think, like, you know, what you said, I think, is the not surprising part is the saddest part of this. The fact that we've just become accustomed in this country to these types of acts of violence. I think this one was particularly bad because it's it's unambiguous what the motives were and the details surrounding it are as bad as you can imagine. But like you said, it's not surprising. And I think that's what we need to focus on is like, how do we make these things more rare? Yeah, on that same day, there was also a shooting in California in a church. And, you know, it's amazing that we can have two things like that happen in one day. And most people haven't even heard of the other one. That's how common this is today. It's obviously this is just heinous and tragic beyond any words. It's it's truly so upsetting to hear that happened. Let's talk a bit about what the manifesto that this shooter left behind tells us about his motivations here. So he says that his biggest influence is the Christchurch shooter. And essentially his his reason for perpetrating this is the great replacement theory, which is um, kind of it's gone through a bunch of different iterations. It started in Europe as a theory that mostly Muslim immigration was being funneled into the area to displace white people and cause the extinction of the race. And then it came to America and took on a distinctly anti-Semitic tone where there's this theory that there's a similar rush of immigration and that Jews are essentially those who are controlling that and behind that. And it's 
he takes it even a step further and starts to believe that the white race is being or starts to assert that the white race is being diluted just by black Americans by them being here. And so in his manifesto, it's 180 pages. Some some parts are are plagiarized from other shooters. Some parts are his own. But essentially, he takes that theory even further. And so what we know from him is that he describes himself as a left-wing authoritarian, a fascist, a neo-Nazi, an eco-fascist. So these are very incoherent ideologies. He's clearly exceptionally disturbed. And what we know about his influence is that he used 4chan, Reddit, 8chan, and he also frequented Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi website. What's interesting about this is there wasn't just the manifesto. There's uh, this expert on internet extremism named Mark Andre Argentino, who had a really good tweet thread that we'll link in the show notes, where he talks about the diary is just as notable for us because it actually catalogs how this, this guy became radicalized. And Mark points to certain moments in time where he thinks we can start to think about prevention, where this guy was having second thoughts and things like that. And he starts to raise the question, well, like, all right, are there certain periods of time or certain moves people make that can allow us to step in and try to de-radicalize people from committing violent acts? I'm not sure I know the answer, but at least that's productive. You know, to me, I'm searching for something productive to get out of this because it's such a sad situation. He had been um, taken in for a mental health evaluation by authorities in the past, but this gets to just a really difficult question of even if someone seems suspicious, like at what point can we start depriving their civil liberties? It's a really tough question. And obviously he was, he did enough to get himself on the threshold of the radar of law enforcement, but then how do they act on it without, you know, unnecessarily acting on people that wouldn't perpetrate a crime like this. It's really tough. And as a libertarian, that's a really hard question to grapple with. Yeah. And he was on their radar prior to this, um, as a matter of fact, based off the interview that he had with law enforcement, he claims that he became radicalized through this great replacement theory via 4chan during the pandemic. So he was bored, started going on 4chan, learning this. And he claims he wasn't even that racist before he was inundated with this content on 4chan. The biggest question is when it comes to this replacement theory, Uh, It doesn't originate on 4chan. It originates back in Europe. It originates many years ago. The question is, how much of the content was he consuming from 4chan? How much of that was influenced by mainstream media or how much of that content is influencing mainstream media, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because there has been some talks about this great replacement theory in some very mainstream uh, right wing circles. Yeah, there there are two different claims, right? Like, Like you said, is it that the the radical stuff that's happening in the fringes of the internet is being consumed by actors with larger platforms and then they're appropriating it and maybe sanitizing it for larger audiences? Or are the people in these radical corners of the internet seeing the more sanitized versions of it and putting their own spin on it? I suspect it's probably both. Uh, some would argue there's a third option, which is they're totally unrelated. This is something that was in the fringe of the internet I think there's a debate about how fringe the fringe really is anymore, but it's also, there's a debate about like major media outlets and whether they were trafficking in these ideas or not. And I think we can start with the the accusation, the argument coming from uh, certain members of the left and center. Let's look at a clip from Crooked Media's Pod Save America from yesterday. What we've learned is the MO of Tucker show. They troll extreme right-wing sites. They sanitize things just enough and they spread it to masses. And the New York Times found that in more than 400 episodes of his show, Carlson amplified the notion that democratic politicians and other elites want to force demographic change through immigration. Um, so 
big picture, like the core sentiment and ideas that make up the great, great replacement theory are not new, draws from very old racist anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that have been around, been around forever. But Tucker is mainlining it into millions of households every night. So this is the accusation that's out there, which is that it's not just something on 4chan, but it's something that shows up in major media outlets. And there's also accusations that major politicians uh, in the GOP have been tra trafficking these theories. Liz Cheney, Republican congresswoman, called out her colleagues on this. Uh, Ricky, what do you make of this claim? Um, you know, I think that there's a case to be made that there's a a narrative about replacement that's happening in these media outlets. I don't think it's the same as what was in this manifesto. There is a far less extreme version of concerns around immigration and how that will affect voting patterns that happens on that, you know, is circulated more in a mainstream way. But to conflate them is absolutely the same or just say that that blame is squarely laid at the feet of certain people who have brought up those those concerns that are far less extreme to me, I'm just not satisfied with that. For the record, I think everyone that knows me as a libertarian knows that I'm very pro-immigration, but I think it's important rather than pulling sound bites of what Tucker has said or this or that to like listen to what his case actually is, which I have tons of problems with, but it's not, it's not what is in this manifesto. This manifesto is a far more warped and far more extreme version of what this is, which I don't agree with either but I think it's worth letting him put it in his own words. And obviously I'm not going to stop saying it because they're saying it. They've written books about it and monographs and endless number of speeches. You know, immigration will make this a more democratic country. Okay, that's what they believe. That was Teddy, that was Teddy Kennedy's motive in passing the 1965 immigration law was to change the composition of the country. And I just think that that's anti-democratic. American citizens should control their government and they do it by voting. And if you dilute their voting power with immigration, you are undermining democracy by definition. So I think like I'm with you that there there are different gradations of this. And in some cases, they're different arguments. But I think for Tucker, he's lost my goodwill uh, to assume the best in the situations. He uses a term uh, on his show called legacy Americans, which is a term that um, before he started using it was a term that basically only showed up in places like the Daily Stormer, you know, and he's also somebody who like from other reporting, whether it's January 6th, which, where, which we've covered before, where he traffics in conspiracy theories, or just generally how he talks about race in general on his show, is that I'm not willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I would just, my only qualm with the way that this is being treated in the media is that people are saying that like the full scale theory is just being trafficked on Fox News all the time and it's very mainstream. There's this effort to kind of lump together Republicans. There was an, a headline from um, the Rolling Stone that said the Buffalo shooter isn't a lone wolf. He's a mainstream Republican. Wesley Lowry, who's uh, from CBS and Washington Post previously said the Ben Shapiro's of the world would say this. Ben Shapiro is in the manifesto being called a rat for being Jewish. Like, I just think that it's it's a mistake to say that there are, that all the people who listen to Fox News or all the people who watch Fox News, I go on Fox News. You guys know that I'm a good faith person. And I think to say that there's this huge faction of America that is sold on this extremely reprehensible fringe theory is just a mistake. And we need to talk about those people that actually exist in that ecosystem. Yeah. And what Tucker is saying, I don't agree with it, but it's simply not go and shoot people at a grocery no, store. I agree with and that. and yeah. I think that, you know, there are always I think his speech leads to that.
I think when you tell white Americans that they are being replaced by immigrants, that African-Americans are somehow a part of this, even though we didn't even come here by choice. I think when you look these white people in the eye and you say you're a legacy American, you are owed something here in America because you were born here and you're white, which is essentially what Tucker Carlson is saying to these people in the minds of especially young people who feel that they cannot compete. They will say, well, you know what? What else am I going to do? Tucker Carlson literally gets on his show all the time and says, do the Democrats really think we're not going to do anything about this? We're not going to stand up for this. We're not going to uh, we're not going to take this. What exactly does he want his audience to do? Vote for Republicans? And why does he think that just because immigrants come to this country, they're going to automatically vote Democrat? I mean, Hispanics in Florida have been trending towards the Republican Party for years now. I mean, they, I mean, Donald Trump got a higher percentage of Latino votes in 2020 than in 2016. So why is the Republican Party trying to get these people who are immigrants to vote for them rather than try to use them as a scapegoat? There was some language he said that I thought was pretty aggressive, which is he said, these are, quote, more obedient voters from the third world. And I think like, Ricky, I, of course, I, I know that this isn't what you believe. And 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 I, I see what you're trying, like what you're saying is like, you don't draw a straight line from what was in this manifesto and, and what he believes to what Carlson is saying. I'm just saying it's that, not clearly a straight line. There's yeah. no evidence that he watched Tucker. I'm not defending what Tucker said. I just, I don't know. I just feel like the conversation is... Tucker Carlson was trending on Twitter and not like the the Daily Stormer, which we know is actually something that he consumes or, you know, everyone's saying that he's a mainstream Republican. He wrote a whole section of his manifesto about how conservatism is dead. And in a lot of parts were lifted. But in one part, that was a question and answer. He said he was a left wing authoritarian. Like This is somebody who has a really confused, twisted, clearly mentally ill sort of psychology and philosophy. Yeah. And I think like part of what we're reacting to as a society is we want to do something about this, right? I think when we see a, a situation like this, we want to say, how do we prevent this type of act from happening in the future? And I think part of what I think a lot of people are alarmed, at, alarmed over, and I would count myself one of them, is that obviously if this particular brand of insanity that he wrote in his manifesto was widespread, I think that we'd be having a very different conversation today. But I do think like there is a reading of it to be like, look, like this stuff that he's saying, Tucker and others, you know, and it's not just me, it's, you know, Liz Cheney is pointing this out too. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, yeah. and the fact that she's alarmed over this too and thinks it's pretty mainstream to me tells me that maybe my gut here, you know, it's something, we may be onto something here, you know? And that, that's what I'm at least concerned about is that like, of course, like everybody who appears on Fox News is not a bad person or in bad faith. Yeah. This particular person to me feels like he's too comfortable flirting with ideas and not being straight up upfront about where they're coming from. And there does seem like there's like some kind of connection. This is what Tommy and John were saying on the show that there's a, a claim that people are finding these ideas that are radical and then sanitizing them for mainstream audiences. Yeah. We don't Alex know for Jones, sure. Alex Jones has admitted to getting some of his theories from 4chan and putting them on his show, which I mean, that's a more extreme right. example. But right. That's, so that's what I'm concerned about. Do I have the smoking gun? Absolutely not. But I think that's that's where my mind went after this. And I think a lot of others too. Yeah, it's a very, very complicated conversation, but it's a conversation that we have to continue having. Overdose deaths are crippling America. They've surpassed deaths related to car accidents, AIDS, and even diabetes. Over 107,000 Americans died last year from fatal overdoses, a 15% increase from the year before. And from 2019 to 2020, drug overdose deaths surged an unprecedented 30%. Behind the rise is a synthetic opioid named fentanyl, a drug 100 
times stronger than morphine. It's flooded the U.S. drug supply, taking tens of thousands of lives every year now. So, Ravi, how did we get here? And more importantly, is there a way out? Yeah, you know, you've seen just drug overdose deaths increase like dramatically, as you mentioned, 2020 to 21, 15% increase. 2019 to 2020, 30% increase. And as you described, there is this particular trend that's happening. And to take a step back, there are basically three major waves of uh, drug overdoses in this country. And I'm now old enough to have lived through all of it, basically, and have seen people I care about die each step of the way from each of these causes. And essentially what we've seen in this country is that since the 1970s, drug overdose deaths have increased every year except for 2018. And there was this paper in Nature that goes through and says there's actually three waves that are happening. One was in the 90s, which is when OxyContin really came out of the market. There's you know obviously a huge lawsuit against Purdue about this, about how addictive it was. A a lot of people in my life got addicted at that point in time, and I lost a lot of friends because of that. Second wave happened around 2010, which was the rapid increase uh, in use of heroin. Basically, what happened was the government started cracking down on OxyContin and, and drugs like that, and so that people started turning to heroin. People start dying from uh, heroin overdoses. But this new phase, which began in 2013, is driven by fentanyl. Essentially, you know what happened was you know heroin is grown from a plant. It's hard to produce. It's hard to ship. But now you have the synthetic form that is easier to make. You can make it, uh, you know, essentially from chemicals. And it's, as you described, way more potent. And the dosage is so sensitive that if you get it off by even a little bit, you kill people. And that's what's happening. So even as drug use in certain categories of people, like, like kids, are actually going down, their deaths are going up because this particular form of heroin and other drugs um, from fentanyl is way more potent, way more sensitive, way more dangerous. Yes, this is a really, really sad situation. I've lost friends to drug overdoses um, and I have seen it increasing more and more in the last few years. How does the pandemic play into all of this? Is it is it the idea that maybe during the pandemic people were by themselves more, they were more isolated, more anxious, that that, that like increased drug use? Well, it's notable that 19 to 20 was a 30% increase. So. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, was that's, before, that was before. In 19 to 20. Sorry. Oh, 19 yeah, yeah. Compared yeah. to the year over year increase. Okay, okay. And so, then an additional 15% from 2020 to 2021. So it's like just an exponential increase on an already accelerated sort of rate. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the, the use in a lot of these years is not going up, it's mm-hmm. the deaths. Yeah. So, and also, as I mentioned, since the 1970s, we've been seeing an, uh, an uptick pretty consistently. So it's, po- it's very possible that, you know, something's going on related to the pandemic, but it's obviously much more than that and i think we as a society you know we've talked about you know in many different ways like how do we and and there was great reporting from wes and nick on our team Uh, people can go back a couple episodes ago we had a special episode about safe injection sites and talking about like how as a country do we grapple with this issue you know it's i think that's where the conversation needs to go which is like we clearly no matter what the form have a problem here you know this fentanyl version story is, is particularly scary but we need to figure out how to better serve and treat people with drug addictions in this country. Mm. And another wrinkle to this increase is teen overdoses are just out of control very suddenly. The first rise in teen deaths from overdoses was in 2020, the first rise like pretty much ever. It's been trending down. Um, it's doubled from 2019 alone, which is 
crazy additional 20% rise in 2020. Um, and they're generally seeking prescription pills, not through like heroin and cocaine, which is uh, typically how people would overdose on fentanyl. But 77% um, of the teens who died overdosed on with fentanyl in their system. Yes, yeah, it's, it's just really difficult because when you're if you're buying these drugs, you don't know if there's fentanyl in them or not. Yeah. Um, there is something that I was looking into. They have these fentanyl uh, test strips. They're actually available at these harm reduction sites and these safe injection sites that we've, we've talked about before. You, you've talked about some of the reporting that some people on our team have done about that. But the problem is several states still outlaw fentanyl test strips because they consider them drug paraphernalia. Yep. Um, it's very interesting. Governors in New Mexico and Wisconsin actually just signed bills this year allowing those test strips to be legal. Uh, legislators in Tennessee and Alabama have also passed similar legislation. But in the state of Pennsylvania, which has a very serious opioid problem, it's still illegal to possess these strips because they consider them paraphernalia, which I think is insane. I don't understand why anybody would be against having something that you can use to test whether or not the drugs are safe. Well, yeah, it, there's, there's also a huge debate happening over the Biden administration's uh, uh, use of funds from the American Rescue Act, uh, specifically for what they call harm reduction services. And this is obviously a huge subject of this episode of our podcast that I referenced, which, where we looked at safe injection sites. And there was this whole brouhaha around whether the administration was giving out crack pipes, et cetera. And actually, there was this bill passed called the Pipes Act, not passed, sorry, that was proposed by Rubio and Manchin signed on to this bill as well. So it's got bipartisan support in a way that is trying to ban the federal government from uh, using federal funds to purchase drug paraphernalia, which would include crack pipes, needles, et cetera. And so I think there is this debate about should the government be trying to do harm reduction by providing safe, whether it's testing uh, resources or as we've covered previously, like the needles and you know crack pipes, like there are, there are issues there, what's the spread of disease, et cetera, or, or whatever. Like, does the government have a role to try to reduce this harm or are they encouraging the drug use mm -hmm. is a big debate. You know, often a lot of the prevention steps get lumped together as one sort of package and people are either for or against it. But I think there's a huge spectrum of things that the government can do, whether it's like decriminalizing or destigmatizing things so that black markets don't be, aren't as dangerous as they clearly are. Or, you know, I think I, I can't even fathom a case to make test strips illegal. That to me is just right. ridiculous. But I can sympathize with people who don't want their tax dollars going towards buying actual paraphernalia for people like i i get that that makes sense but there are definitely actionable common sense things that we can do like making test strips legal that just seems so obvious well it just seems like you know the government is always talking about trying to solve the problem of so many people in this country doing illegal narcotics we have a bigger problem with that than I, I, i'm i'm gonna go on a limb and say almost any other country on earth i'm not sure if that's true but we have a huge huge problem with drug consumption in this country and it's like you're not going to stop people from doing drugs so at least they should do them safely i mean that is my view of it you can mitigate it i think and and the question to me is it, the level of government involvement to me is a cost benefit analysis right like like our are we actually not just dollars and cents, but lives saved as well? Like, is the government intervention going to help save lives and make like the whole system uh, work better? Yeah. Or mm -hmm. is it not? And that's, you know, that, that's something that we've covered before. But I think there's one country that can point the way here, which is Portugal, which had a combination of harm reduction, which is some of the things that we're talking about, like the, the government getting involved to try to mitigate catastrophe, decriminalization, and then treatment. 
heavy, heavy investment in treatment. Yeah. And they've been seeing uh, dividends from this. The levels of drug use in Portugal have been consistently below the European average over the past 20 years. And this is particularly the case among young people. So I think when we're looking for other solutions, we've also, you know, at, at other points looked to Canada, for example, which has experimented in way more aggressive harm reduction strategies and decriminalization and treatment. That to me seems like a combination that when used together could be really effective. And this is one of those areas where federalism could work to our advantage. And when yep. different states can implement different policies, we could see which work and which don't. Mm -hmm. And then other states could pick those up. Yeah, just the one thing that doesn't totally sit well with me is the idea that the government would facilitate things that are illegal. And I think the question is, should they be illegal in the first place? Because, I mean, I think when you're saying we should have safe injection sites for things that are outlawed that taxpayers are paying for, it doesn't really make a lot of sense considering that we have outlawed these substances. The demand has not gone away. It's gone underground into the black market. It's far more dangerous. We've destroyed the lives of users who feel like they can't do it in a safe way. And I, I mean, I think this is just a condemnation of the aggressive war on drugs and just further proof that that doesn't work. And even in the past few years, when we've seen a worsening fentanyl crisis, that comes as China um, outlawed the production of opioids that were coming to America. That was kind of our pipeline. And then, of course, the black market started there. It was even more dangerous. They started shipping it to Mexico and then that came through our border. So more cracking down has actually made these opioids more dangerous to people. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on, on decriminalizing or just making legal a lot of this stuff. I think my second preference is that if we're not going to do that, or if like you're a state and you can't completely control what the federal government is going to do, is try to mitigate the harm. So I'm, I'm sympathetic if you can't, if you can't do enough to make it totally legal, at least trying to save lives. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's move on to our next story. Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter is on hold until the platform proves its number of bot and spam accounts. Earlier this month, Twitter estimated that fake accounts comprise less than 5% of its total active users. But Musk is skeptical of this figure. By his calculations, fakes could account for a much higher percentage, anywhere from 20 to 90%. As a result of the public drama playing out about Twitter, on Twitter, of course, the company's stock has plummeted, which begs the question, is Musk getting cold feet about the $44 billion deal, or is this a tactic to buy Twitter at a discount? Uh, so what do we think is going on here? Yeah, I, I'm going to say this is our mind reading episode, because I think between <laughs> Tucker and Musk, I think it's like we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out what are these people, are, what are they trying to do? And I think in this case... Elon said something interesting when he was down at a conference in Miami. He used the terms, it was a, quote, material adverse misstatement of Twitter to imply that it was 5% yeah. um, accounts yeah. that were fake. That's not like an accidental use, uh, um, you know, phrase. The term uh, material adverse change is a legal term of art that means that there would be an act by Twitter that would be a breach of contract, essentially. And so I, he's essentially signaling that he thinks there was a breach of contract. I think a lot of legal observers think that it's going to be a tough case to make because judges have been making it a lot harder to invoke um, that standard. So uh, we'll see this play out. We don't, because there's a non-disclosure agreement, I think we, we don't really know exactly what's in this contract. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's totally unclear whether he has a case or not, or whether he's going to have to pay that $1 billion penalty. He may have breached 
his own contract by by explaining how Twitter uh, finds fake accounts, like taking the sample size of 100 and determining how many of them are actually real. He basically said on Twitter that he was going to do the same he thing. Breached the NDA. Yeah. He possibly yeah. breached yeah. the NDA. Which, Twitter isn't it that, kind yeah. of insane that in Twitter's filing, they used a sample of 100 accounts to determine that it was 5%? That literally just means they counted to 5. They didn't even have to calculate the percentage. I agree. I mean, it, I don't think either side looks great on this one. I think this is chaos. If I was a Twitter shareholder or an employee, I would be really oh, concerned man. right now. You just wake up every day. You don't know <laughs> you don't what know. your future's yeah. going to look like. And I'm, I'm, I could see this going anywhere, but it's it, to me, it, it, this is in the mind reading exercise. I, it feels to me he's trying to pull away from this deal. And even if he has to pay a billion dollar penalty, which would probably be litigated forever now yeah. based on yeah. this, you know, I guess a billion dollars compared to this world where he was on the hook for some rather expensive financing yeah. uh, in an mm-hmm. unprofitable company. My sense is he may have looked at that and said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be paying, like if I take on Twitter, there's this company that, you know, has been really hard to make money from. Mm-hmm. Now I'm supposed to be making a lot of money in the middle of a recession potentially. Yeah. Maybe he looked at that and was like, it's not worth the trouble. I just can't believe that he didn't already know that Twitter had a very serious bot problem. Like, didn't well, he know that going is, in? He thinks that they're lying about how bad it is. He mm. thinks that the number is much higher than 5%. And I think that, you know, if he's going to buy a company, it's fair to want a, some clarity on one of the most major problems that you want to fix and you want to understand what the issue is that you're going into. And if you think that there's something dishonest in the way that they're filing that report, which I think almost any Twitter user would probably agree, it seems like it's more than 5%. I don't yeah. think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But I mean, both sides have been kind of shooting. Like I, I didn't know about that kind of like subversive legal language that he was using. But then also yeah, to Twitter, be clear, I'm not saying it was like a like a, a cheap shot or something. I think yeah. he was just signaling like no, that's yeah, where yeah, he was yeah. going. Yeah. Um, and, t- and Twitter is also kind of firing back legally too, saying that he violated the NDA. So it seems like mm-hmm. potentially both sides are sabotaging this deal. Right. I mean, I, I, but then again, you really can't know. He did say two hours after he asked for clarification on that statistic that he's still committed, but, yeah. um, you know. he's. A, I would say he's erratic as somebody who's been rather sympathetic <laughs> yes. to him. Uh, and <laughs> no, I think like, his original tweet quoted old statistics. I think yeah. that had been in the public domain at least for a little bit of time. And I think that's what critics of Elon are saying are that like, look, this guy is saying things that may be true, but he should have known before he, you know, made all these announcements. Yeah. And especially if he's going to quote an article that had already existed in the public domain, at least have your people do the research. Like if this is truly the reason why you're backing away from this deal, like, you know, you're a super rich person. You could, you could answer some of these questions. I think like you can ask any like academic who's really good at statistics or any firm to be like, hey, can you give me a rough estimate as to how many bots might be on this site, yeah. how many fake uh, accounts would be on the site, and or just do a, a LexisNexis search of people <laughs> making those claims. Yeah. And you could have known this before you signed a contract. Twitter and Elon Musk are like a couple that's engaged, <laughs> that went into it a little too fast, and they're looking for any reason to call off the wedding. <laughs> but that's just my observation of the situation. So America has a dire shortage in baby formula. More than 40% of the usual supply is out of stock, leading first and foremost to a very real crisis for countless families. But it's also brought on a predictable round of political finger pointing. We'll get to all of that. But Ricky, walk us through how we came to this shortage in the first place. Um, So just to give a sense of how bad it is right now, there's a 44% out of stock rate um, and almost half of moms use formula formula at least to supplement with breastfeeding. Um, And there's no adequate alternatives aside from breast milk, if that's not a possibility for you. 
you, you you really can't make it yourself because there's such a delicate balance of electrolytes and vitamins and minerals that an infant needs. And so the best estimate we can get on how long this is going to last is from the former FDA commissioner, Peter Pitts, who says maybe six to 10 weeks, but that's just one person's guess. But essentially... The, the most major trigger here is a recall of Abbott Nutrition's um, baby formula after two infants died from a bacterial infection. They've since been cleared after an FDA investigation of a causal link, although they have had some issues on their factory. But one of their factories was closed. They voluntarily recalled everything just to make sure that no one was at risk. And they have a 43% share of um, stock, essentially a monopoly in some areas. And so that's that's basically how we got here. That was the most immediate impetus. Mm. And it seems like there's like certain forces at play. I think this has gotten a lot of people to examine like the supply chain for mm-hmm. food in this country, if that's even the word we used to describe it. And, you know, a couple months ago, we talked about how consolidated the meat industry was and yeah. how yeah. only a few players controlled essentially all of a meat processing in this country. And it seems like there's like a threefold problem here with formula in this country that in some ways mimics other problems that we have mm-hmm. uh, within our food supply. One is that there's, um, I wouldn't say a monopoly, but an oligopoly probably. Abbott had approximately 43% of the market share, and there are only four major manufacturers uh, of formula in the United States who dominate the market. And so that seems like problem number one is that we're, you know, any problem in any one of these companies means that we're in trouble. Mm. So that consolidation is an issue. I think two is this question of tariffs. There's a 17.5% tariff on imports of formula. And a lot of people are saying, well, why can't we, for example, import formula from Canada? Uh, The FDA has the authority to go inspect plants abroad. So why couldn't we do Mm -hmm. that and increase our supply? And then there's this third question of uh, the government nutritional program for women, infants, and children, what people call WIC. Because of the weird workings of how that happens, sometimes states are giving monopolies to certain companies to provide formula for WIC participants. Mm -hmm. And so in certain cases, there's consolidation there. So it seems like we've got a couple of problems we need to unwind here. Yeah, that that, in that case, they're giving exclusive contracts by state. And so essentially any distributor, any store is just going to order that for the WIC program and also for the general uh, public that isn't on that program. And so that is essentially the way or the reason that we could end up with such severe shortages in some areas is because Abbott might be the only one there, period, which is really crazy. And, you know, if there's one thing that we don't want to severely limit the free market on, it's probably something as serious as baby formula. Mm-hmm. Because an example like this, if one major player goes out, yeah. this is really potentially very, very scary. Well, it sounds like there was some serious issues with Abbott and the factories as they were operating. But this is taking on all of these political connotations. What is going on specifically? I'm hearing this story about uh, there being formula at the border. Yeah. So um, Representative Kat Kamek, she tweeted out photos that she says came from a border agent at Ursula Migrant Processing Center in Texas. And it's their photos showing like enormous uh, packages of baby formula that are at these detention centers. And her take on it is that this is sort of like an America last agenda that Texas has all of these or these huge stores of formula and that they're not giving it to mothers. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot of unclear details around this right now. The question for me, obviously, if America is detaining infants they need to be fed like that's just a moral that's not a moral question at all whatsoever Mm -hmm. um for me i think where i come down on this is 
is there a ton of excess? I don't know. I Nobody's discussed this in this conversation. Right. Like mm -hmm. how many infants are actually in these detention centers? Do they have years of supply? Is it just a couple months? And I think that that's really right. important because if it's years of supply, then of course it should be distributed. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's, it's definitely like Abbott came down strongly against it. I haven't heard any analysis on the sort of quantity of and, what it really is. And the question is. is like, I want my government overdoing it on ensuring that they have a supply of... Uh, formula for infants that are under their care. You Absolutely. know what I'm saying? So like 100%. some excess is expected yeah. in this circumstance. And this is where like the politicization in this country has gotten in the way of our humanity. It's like, are we waiting for that gotcha moment to be like, oh, here's the unused baby formula. Mm -hmm. Like if we're doing it right, there's gonna be some unused baby formula because you don't mm -hmm. want to, the opposite problem, right? Which is that we yeah. run out when we have people in our care. Right? Yeah, yeah, and the question is about the quantity and when there's a cell phone photos, it's really hard to tell right. or to determine it. And I think that there have been like, really extreme fault lines of like Americans hate immigrant children or Republicans hate immigrant children or like just, I don't know, or that America is being put last on the other side. And right. like, it just became a really severe debate around this, which to me, it's just a question of like, how much is there and is there enough to go around? And why would it be a problem that we're feeding children that America has detained? We've got to stop politicizing yeah, children absolutely. in this case. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And yeah. I feel like it was, a lot more investigation needed to go into, are these photos real? How much is there? How many children are at these centers before right. it was tweeted out by a representative? Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I don't like quoting, said something about the fact that we were spending $40 billion in aid to Ukraine. Why isn't that money being spent to try to solve this crisis? But can money just be thrown at a crisis like this to actually solve it? Well, I just need two different things. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it, totally. it feels disingenuous to connect the yeah. two. You know? And to be clear, there are a lot of people on the right that don't feel that way. Dan Crenshaw came out against that. I mean, it's just $40 billion isn't going to fix something that's clearly time frame oriented. Yeah. And, you know, this might be the impetus if you want an actual solution to remove some tariffs, to allow some more com competition in this space. And I think that that would probably be a very smart thing to do in the long term, but certainly $40 billion right now is not going to solve it. And I'm sympathetic to certain tariffs. I just think that there are certain things where it makes no sense, like in this case. Like, yeah. first of all, we're talking about Canada. We're talking about dairy production. We're talking about like an absolutely essential item in our supply that we are not able to produce ourselves. This yeah. seems like a slammed up case to get rid of the tariff. I think, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's definitely caution that you would like things to be FDA regulated and to make sure that they're of high quality if they're coming from foreign sources that might not be, I mean, with something as sensitive as baby formula, you want to make sure that that's nutritionally right. sound. And so I think that there's a case for some guardrails, but to have a kind of punitive tariff that makes it completely uncompetitive for foreign sources clearly has its consequences. It's yeah, it's definitely a horrible crisis and hopefully it gets resolved soon. Let's move on. An ACT study calls grade inflation a persistent systematic problem in American high schools. Now, we've touched on this trend before, but one of the arguments for grade inflation seems to be that it boosts students' confidence. But Ravi, I know you're eager to tear into that one, so I'm just going to let you have it from here. Well, you know, back when we were running schools, we used to ask a series of questions of people who would be applying to come work for us as teachers. And the most important question I would ask of somebody is, I'd give them a false choice just to see how they think. I would say, if you can only do one of two things in your time with your students, either raise their student achievement or raise is their self-esteem and i'd basically frame it like in one year when you have these kids which of those two would you pick and to me it wasn't about the right answer or the wrong answer it would be like how do you think about this and in a sense like the answer i was looking for is some sense of that student achievement is something you can measure 
it's something that as a teacher is like squarely within your domain and it comes before the self-esteem in many cases, right? Like in, when you're producing high quality work, when you're excelling, your self-esteem follows versus what I think what happens in a lot of cases is that there's this presumption that if you just tell people nice things, they're going to be smart, which actually there's a lot of evidence that if you actually give blanket very general praise to kids that they actually come to not believe you anymore. Yeah. And so I actually think this is a perfect example of this is like, I want actual achievement. Uh, and this is an example of why I think standardized tests are really important is because like these grades are going to keep going up and up and up, especially as colleges, as we've previously discussed, and we write in our newsletter this week, colleges are abandoning the ACT and the SAT, and they're now waiting, they're proposing to wait GPAs more. That means that Schools are going to have more and more incentive to keep raising these because they want to help their kids. Yeah, it's giving kids a false sense of security when you say, oh, here's an A just because you deserved it, but you didn't really work for mm -hmm. it. Right. And I think that that's very troubling. And also to have like a clear metric that's pretty consistent gives you something to work towards. At NYU and at my high school, I think both of them had a median grade of A minus, which, you know, yeah. I like I left NYU with a 4.0, but that just made me slightly above the average, right. which is just kind of crazy to think that there was only one bar to cross beyond an an A minus the median, which like I want to work as hard as I possibly can and I want to be rewarded in a proportionate way. And I think that that denies kids that really want to excel yeah. the opportunity to distinguish themselves, especially on an application. Yeah, like here's a world, like let's imagine a world where you're a student at Title I school, like some of the schools that we used to run down South that has a 4.0, but let's say like everybody has a 4.0 uh, and now there's no longer standardized tests being used in admissions. How mm -hmm. do you show that you are more capable than somebody at some fancier school that has a yeah. relationship with the advisor. And so this is what we write about. People can go to Substack and search for the Lost Debate newsletter. This is what I write about in the sense of like talking about this terrible trend of moving away from these standardized tests. I argue that the tests are actually progressive and that they're the best tool, very imperfect, but best tool that we have in admissions to create a predictable, objective reality for kids trying to make it in this country. Also, if a kid is going to a low-income school and he's getting these you know, very high grades versus a kid that's going to a, a school that is more highly regarded, then they're going to choose the kid from the highly, highly regarded school over the low-income school. But if you have something like the ACT or the SAT, that's objective metric, that's a chance for this kid mm -hmm. from the low-income school 100%. to be able to say, look, I, if I can succeed at this, then I can compete with this person from this other school. Right. And, and these people who are critics of the test will say, well, you know, the test correlates with income. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and family college attainment. But what they won't say is that every conceivable alternative to it tracks as much, in some cases, I would believe even more. more so. Like who has the relationship with the college counselor? Who has more extracurriculars, right? Mm -hmm. Who has the, the the resources to pay for, you know, essay editing yeah. and all this kind of stuff? Never mind, some of these people just pay for other people to write their damn essays for them. <laughs> so it's like, for me, at least the kid knows what it is. They know that it's not going to be messed with on the back end. Mm -hmm. It's not like they have to compare th their, you know, captain of the badminton team to somebody else's rowing background or something, which is totally subjective. Yeah. Like to me, this is like, all right, this is at least one objective measure in a sea of subjective measures. Nobody, I'm not even arguing that you get rid of those other measures. I'm mm -hmm. just saying at least include one objective measure that isn't getting inflated. Absolutely. Hopefully they stop inflating the grades. <laughs> We're just leaving with inflation everywhere now. Just inflation <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, in the yeah. economy and grades. <laughs> it's just, oh, man tires uh we're gonna uh, thank you all for watching and listening to our show make sure to subscribe to our youtube page and if you're listening to the podcast make sure to rate review and subscribe we will see you guys next time